happened in the 90s. Just one taste of Honey Bunches of Oats cereal and you'll love it instantly. Honey Bunches of Oats? You're not going to convince me. I'm convinced. Like I was saying, this is special. Starting with those toasty flakes of corn and wheat. What makes you think this is the one? This is the one. This is great. Combined with those honey-kissed oat clusters in every mouth-watering bite. If you really want me to try it, okay, I'll try it, but no promises, okay? Whoa. Post Honey Bunches of Oats. One taste is all it takes. Whoa. This is Stephen Matt with Happened in the 90s, a show where we talk about things that happened in the 90s. All right, so welcome everybody to a very special episode of Happened in the 90s. I'm here with my boy Steve. Steve, what's up? What's up, Matt G? We're here. Real G's moving silence like lasagna. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and we're here again with a super special guest, somebody we just met, but a legend himself of the 90s, uh, <laughs> Scott. Hey, ladies Edwards. and gentlemen, it's uh, Scott Edwards. And uh, uh, I don't know about legend, but uh, I know a bit about comedy. Oh, wait a minute. We have to have the proper uh, introduction. Ladies and gentlemen, your host and MC, Scott Edwards. All right, good enough. Here we go. <laughs> Love it. Well, honestly, Scott, uh, you are an expert in stand-up comedy. And as a stand-up comedy geek, nerd, uh, whatever you want to call me, you've, I've been annoying you for about an hour just about comedy in general. Uh, I can't wait to sit down with you and Steve and just talk stand-up comedy in general, but definitely 90s stand-up comedy. We got to hear, we we need some stories. We need some secrets. Who well, we was, some, was Dave uh, Coulier out there with... in a Ferrari with 10 women with him at all time? What was happening back then? It was uh, a wild time. Uh, just to uh, catch the audience up, I opened uh, the 12th Comedy Club in the country, full-time comedy club in 1980, uh, before you guys were born, and caught that wave where I had the opportunity to work with uh, uh, they're known celebrities now, but I got a chance to work with them when they were not quite so famous and um, watch their careers blossom and kind of take that ride with them. And uh, a, a great example of that was uh, Dave Coulier uh, was one of the very first acts I ever saw. In fact, he was one of the reasons I opened a comedy club. I uh, dropped into a satellite version of the comedy store in Westwood just by UCLA. It's not there, hasn't been there for a long time, but I dropped in and on stage was Sandra Bernhardt and Dave Coulier and a few others. And uh, I was like, wow, this is fun. It's exciting. And uh, I was selling life insurance at the time and hated my job. And I literally uh, came back to Sacramento, quit my job, uh, went bankrupt to get rid of some debts and opened a comedy club. And then one of the first acts, of course, I booked was uh, Dave Collier. But to relate it to your show, it happened in the 90s, which is uh, very 
great show. Thank you. Talking about all things 90s. Uh, Dave ended up as one of the main cast members of Full House. And we all remember Full House. Did you know, so you knew him before Full House? Oh, a decade before. He was working with me in 1980, and he did, he was like family. He was at my bachelor party, uh, came out naked in front of everybody at my bachelor party. Uh, but uh, the reason cut I brought it out. <laughs> Dave, cut it out. Dave. Yeah, right, right. And the reason I brought it up was that uh, for your show, it happened in the 90s. Full House was a big, uh, successful series in the 90s. And uh, 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 90, uh, well, it went from 89 to 95, but uh, I had already had a long-time relationship with Bob Saget and Dave Collier, and we got invited onto the set. So we were on the set of Full House, and what was great was uh, John Stamos, Saget, and Collier were all not just acting together on this sitcom, they were great friends. Oh, wow. In fact, after the taping, uh, Couillet, Stamos, and I went out for crab, so. You went uh, out with John Stamos, guy? Oh yeah. We, we've, we've hung a couple times. Oh but my God, okay, well. The point I brought it up was, Full House was a successful 90s show. Your podcast is all about things that happened in the 90s. And even though Coulier worked for me all through the 80s and we're really good friends, uh, it was that show that speaks to your 90s appreciation audience. Right. I mean, I could probably think of 50,000 off-color questions to ask you just about <laughs> hanging out with John Stamos. Uh, but I can't, now this is like a bomb in our podcast, Steve. I don't know what fate or brought us in connection with Scott, but now it's like, you know, in Avengers, there's like Infinity Stones. Scott's like all of the Infinity Stones. <laughs> Great the whole reference. Well, I'm definitely Thanos. Yeah, you're about to snap this podcast out, Scott. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, we're going to make it all happen. Yeah. <laughs> there it is. I mean... What was it like to see, I mean, you knew Dave Collier and Bob Saget. So both those guys, you knew them before. So were they just broke road comics, struggling artists guys, or what was their thing I gotta like be, before they got uh, that? Yeah, I want to share with uh, both you, uh, Steve and Matt, that uh, I was very blessed and that uh, I got in, we were all about the same age, and I got in with uh, Dave and Bob. Uh, they were early in their careers. I was just, I was an idiot opening up a comedy club. I had no clue what I was doing at all by the seat of my pants. And these guys introduced me to people, helped set up stuff. I mean, it was because of uh, uh, Bob Saget that my very first headliner was a huge entertainer at the time, George Wallace, who is went on to fame and fortune in uh, Vegas. And my opening act of my very first show in August of 1980, Gary Shanley and he was the wow, opening wow. act he was he was making 150 bucks a week <laughs> wow. that is crazy yeah but it was because of introductions that Bob yeah R.I.P. to Gary Shanley what yeah. a complete badass yeah and and it was it was the the friendship I built with Bob and Dave that really uh, helped my career and my business take off so I'll always be indebted to them and like I said, uh, 
we did a lot of uh, uh, special things together. Uh, Bob Saget's a great guy. And you were saying earlier, you didn't know he was a musician. He was actually uh, had music in all of his shows in the early mm. days. And uh, in about 1984, um, my club was starting to take off and, and do well. And uh, I produced a, a series of TV commercials and Bob Saget was the star. And in, in one of them, Bob throws me off a building and in another one, he hits me with my own car. <laughs> Last unlimited commercial, take three, action. My hair okay? Oh. My name is Bob. You know, some people say there's not much to do in Sacramento, and that's just not true. There's a lot of wonderful things here. There's a bridge, there's a tree, there's a, <laughs> there's a beautiful woman. There's the Railroad Museum. Excuse me, I'm making a commercial. <laughs> I think we have a problem here, okay? Oh, well, let's go down and pick up the pieces, guys, okay? Do I have TV? Oh, my God! Thank you. Thank you. Jeez, I don't believe this. Last Unlimited, all comedy showroom, 108 K Street, Old Sacramento. Well, Sacramento, that's right here. That's right here now. We can buy our tickets and we can get a few laughs. We'll go to the yes, that's Laughs Unlimited, Sacramento's only all-comedy nightclub. For information, call 446-5905. Appearing at Laughs Unlimited through Thursday evening, it's Pat Paulson. For showtimes and reservations, call 446-5905. And it was just so much fun to work with somebody that creative and that fun. Was he the um, complete, disgusting material guy that he is now that he's been, you know, he was on the Aristocrats movie. And I feel like people knew he was like that as a comedian before, but I definitely was made aware of that by that movie. And uh, Yeah, I don't think it was public knowledge at yeah. the time. Uh, no. You know, he had this wholesome image of being Danny Tanner yeah. and, right. you know, America's Most Funny Videos and all of that, so. And he was America's dad. He was one of the first, you know, it, when you get past uh, Fred McMurray and some of the guys in the 60s and the 50s, um, Full House made Bob Saget America's dad, Mr. Clean. And it was hilarious because all through the 80s, he was on my stage as one of the, and by the way, he was a dirty act, but not frivolous. One of the things that I don't like is when, and we were talking about comedy earlier with Matt, that you get these guys that go on stage and they go, you know, I went to the fricking store to get some fricking bread for my fricking bitch wife. I mean, that's not funny to me, but you can still be dirty and have talk about edgy things but have it really be funny and that you're just not dropping f-bombs all over so bob was a genius at that great side story so it's uh probably about 1981 i'm sitting a uh, post show having some drinks with bob and dave so it's just the three of us sitting at a little cocktail table and we're just bsing and all of a sudden i noticed that they're passing something under the table and I, I go, come on, guys, what, you know, don't leave me out of this joke. What's going on? And Dave pulls up this piece of folded paper and inside was some like lint. And Bob had passed it to Dave and on it, it says, here's some of my pubic hair for you. <laughs> I feel like his image also, uh, you know, after he became not Danny Tanner and the guy on America's Funniest Home Videos, and he was more of just, uh, himself and a comedian again. 
it really helped his brand moving forward because you're like Danny Tanner is saying the most disgusting shit I've ever heard in my life on so it almost made it that much more it enhanced it in a way so well that's why that's I think hilarious. he was picked as the winner or the best on the aristocrats because aristocrats because he, he's coming from this uh, uh, image of purity and then when he can when he can take it over the edge and I think a lot of times that's what uh, comedy is e even clean comedy I mean if you're if you're saying uh, uh, you know I I, I I can't come up with a quick analogy but the idea is you, you talk about something normal like going to the store or driving your car what makes it funny is when you take it to the craziness you know when you take it to that next level and Bob Saget was a great example of a career that the public saw is you know uh, the the clean uh, wholesome father to uh, one of the dirtiest and by the way he was always crazy on stage he, I mean some of uh, you heard on my podcast by the way my podcast stand-up comedy your host and MC uh, has a segment with uh, Bob Saget doing some uh, music and I'm sorry for the the uh, plug uh, plug away this well is your, uh, this is a platform of plugging we got to get the word out for Scott. well matt and i did it earlier and steve wasn't there so i wanted to get one in for steve plug it out <laughs> steve you know steve has his little routine he had to he had to just you know meditate a little bit scott it is what it is well, Steve, I don't know if you've had a chance to listen to any of the shows. Matt has, and we were talking about uh, the difference between my show, my podcast, and others you might hear is that uh, Joe Rogan and some of the others just go on and talk in a humorous way about themselves or their life or their experiences. Right. Mine is a total tribute to pure stand-up comedy. I mean, it's, it's all about entertainment. There's no therapy involved. It's guys just being funny on stage in front of a live audience. Everything I share is live. Uh, I mean, it wasn't, it's not live now. It was live in the 80s and 90s, but it's uh, it's more of a tribute, an homage to the art form of stand-up comedy. And I, and, I think- and we talked about that a little bit. Um, yeah. I, I appreciate the fact that your show has structure. Um, it, like you mentioned, Joe Rogan, a, a lot of these podcasts and even beginners, uh, they, they just have a round table discussion where it's like, hey, here's me and my, my friends, and this is what we're gonna talk about for the next hour or so. Whereas with yours, you have a beginning, a middle and an end. And I appreciate that. It shows okay. more thought. And the fact that you, you said you have a background in, in dealing with television. And I think that is a part of the reason why you have structure because you understand that these productions um they they have segments and they're they're fragmented in such a way that you know there's a general understanding that people have a short attention span um so hey let, let's do this for about five six minutes and then boom we'll do something different about four or five minutes and then you know um so i do appreciate that and that that makes to me, podcasts stand out from the rest. 
Oh, and also, like, I'd like to add on to what Steve said about the structure is that I think it kind of, I, I, it's not something you would like go about doing or you went up and like had this in mind, but having structure in a podcast also is sort of like a comedian set. You watch a comedian do a set on stage and it seems like if they're good at it, it seems like they're just coming to this shit off the cuff. Like this is insane. You know, they're laughing, the laughs and all, but even the laugh, is maybe something that they put into this act and it's they need all these beats and it's something that seems very unstructured but it's super structured and tone, well, like finely honed to like the edge of a sword you know? and i think that's so important that you point that out matt is a lot of people wonder why uh, a lot of comedians end up being actors and the reason is is that when you hear something the way the entertainer is acting, and I'm not talking about television, I'm talking about live on stage, they're acting like, oh, I just made this up. I just thought of this joke. When in reality, they've probably been practicing it for a couple of years to make sure that the verbiage and the timing and the pace and the expression of the material is fresh. And that's where the acting comes in. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, um, <clears throat> you pick uh, Jerry Seinfeld doing a joke and, and everybody goes, oh man, how did he think of that? Well, he thought about it probably six months earlier and has done it 40 times and gotten the, the, the timing. It's all about timing, right? You got to get the right verbiage. Then oh, once man. you have the bit, the, the seed, then you want to grow from there and you might add a callback or change the words or change the location just to, just to mix it up for yourself as an entertainer. And that's how you keep it fresh. Yeah. And that's one bit, you know, and that's a, and like a full hour. There's a bunch of those and it's, where does it go? What do I do in between? And it's such a very structured thing. And I always, when I became a fan of comedy and actually got into the behind the scenes, um, that's what I liked. And I, one other thing I want to say about your podcast, Scott, it, that I think makes it very um, different than all the other comedy podcasts because all the other comedy podcasts are either people like me and Steve who are not comedians. We're just people that think we're funny and want to talk. That you have a good humor in your show. Yeah, exactly. But most of them, like a Joe Rogan or any of those comedian podcasts, it's from the perspective of a comedian. But yours, you get the added benefit of having it from the perspective of somebody who's owned a comedy club and what goes, I'm interested in, I don't know if that's for everyone, but for me, like the business of comedy is something so interesting on top of just the insane stories you have and dealing with these crazy personalities. So that's why I love listening to it is you get to hear all this funny shit, but then somebody like you who's been in the business has this, you know, experience as a business owner too, on top of it, very interesting stuff. Well, Steve, you're a producer of music. You understand the cadence of a set. You, you don't want to go out and blow the audience out with your closing song. You want to lead them into a set and build the momentum and energy in a room. Comedy is the same way in that uh, we, we try to teach people that want to be comics you open with your second strongest bit and prove to the audience that you're, you know what you're doing. Then you can try new stuff in the middle. And if you lose them, don't worry, you'll get them back. And then you always end on your best bit. And that's basically uh, how you build a comedy set, whether it's five minutes or, or I saw, uh, I booked Jerry, uh, Jay Leno for a concert. He did 90 minutes straight. 
I mean, it was, it, 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 once you're good and you understand your, who you are and what you're sharing, uh, there's no stopping you. But, but Steve, you can relate to that from a musical point of view, right? Uh, yes, sir. Um, but even with, if you compare music or, or stand-up com comedy to any art, I feel like stand-up comedy is the most difficult style of performance um, because you're up there by yourself as opposed to being up there with a couple other guys, your guitarist, your bassist, your drummer. Um, unless you're in a duo or something like that, it's you against the crowd. And as we've heard time and time again, timing is everything. So you might have the right joke in mind and it could kill, but it could be that it could be one word and it could be off for a second. And then if, if you say it a wrong way, that could just take the air out of your whole set. And it, it's an uphill uh, battle from there. And right. you're ultimately uh, responsible. In fact, uh, for a sports analogy, um, golf. Golf is the only sport where it's one person against, you know, that, that it's totally up to that person over and over and over to hit the right shot to, to get success. A comic, as you pointed out very wisely, Steve, is on his own, bearing his material, his, his self, to a, a room full of strangers, whether it's 12 people or, or 12,000 people. He's uh, got to uh, capture the audience, entertain the audience, and get out of there. <laughs> yeah. yeah, get in and get the fuck out of there. And also, like, a, like a, you think like a writer or something like that that's an artist that's by himself or herself, you know, if I paint a picture, I don't have to sit there and have people react to the picture while I'm painting it or, you know, see a reaction. A comedian might, if he's trying something out, go out there and be like, I have this funny fucking, I have a funny bit right now. I'm going to go tell it. And then you have to watch yourself die this death and watch all these people's faces react to what you're saying and that's why steve i told the story i don't even know if i told you this uh but the one time i tried stand-up comedy i made a few errors i brought people i knew from work which i should not have done the uh, first i went to a place in la that was featured in a documentary about comedy so a lot of people knew about it so there was people there that were probably way further along than a guy uh doing his first set but i went up on stage did a seven minute set steve i have no fuck i blacked out i i i went up i did something because my friend said yeah you were kind of funny but <laughs> so i don't know if i went up and was like bah, 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 or what i blacked out so you guys you ever eat cheese cheese is a funny thing cheese is a strange thing i, I was wondering like where what is cheese where does it go but i had oh, a man I had a rush afterwards, but I was like, I can't, if I'm going to go up on stage and just black out and not know what I said, I can't do this. I'm not, I'm not meant for that side of it. I got to tell you, comedy club. I'm impressed that you tried to do seven minutes. I got to tell you, that's a long set for a non-professional. Yeah. <laughs> Three minutes yeah. on stage is, a, is an eternity. Seven minutes, I mean, to be, uh, um, to grab anyone's attention in an open mic, you need at least five minutes of pure material. To do seven when you, it's your first time on stage is uh, an incredible risk. So congratulations oh, on uh, thank you. giving I it a shot. I lived in fear of the memory, but then I talked to my buddy who went like years later and he was like, no, you were funny. Like you didn't, 
I thought I went up on stage and just like sat there and you could hear me breathing essentially. I was just like <sighs> Yeah, but but you just gain more had more experience on stage. <laughs> How long did you used to go? Uh man, when I did it now now same thing with Matt, like I I, I bombed. I, I don't know if you like bomb bombed the first time you went, but when I went, I bombed, man, and I had this material in my head and I was like, yeah, man, I know this is going to kill, this is going to kill, this is going to kill. And when I went up there, I was a shivering bitch. And <laughs> oh God, I, I, I'm holding the mic Thank and you could, you could tell. And um, they could tell that I was nervous. And from the very first joke, I can't remember what it was. It was just a face palm. And it, it was a total shit show from there. But I, I came back to that same place and I was in Houston. Um, which is, it, it's ripe of hack comedians. Uh, <laughs> and, and oh. Oh, he froze. Oh, and there we go. The same material, but uh, the same material, but I, I wasn't as nervous. I was like, dude, get some uh, liquid courage and dude, just like, you know, this stuff is funny. And the second time I killed, man, because the timing was better. And uh, I got you had the a, experience. A huge you had pop. one under your belt. Yeah. The yeah, uh, by the way, it's an old uh, show business adage: never let them see you sweat. Yeah. Well, yeah, they... the audience, the audience is is like a hungry alligator. They will, if they see uh, raw meat up there, they're going for it. <laughs> I've seen that. We went to a comedy store like New Year's Eve show uh, a few years back. My wife and I, and. Uh, there was a SNL alum that was the host of it. Um, but so like experienced comedy store vets and no one laughed the whole night, Scott. It was a New Year's Eve show. I was like, of course, this, everyone's gonna wanna party. I don't know what it was. I don't it, know if you happens. have experience with that, like New Year's Eve shows maybe, but. Well, not New Year's Eve, oh. but uh, uh, audiences, and we used to call it the audience monster because you never know what you're gonna get in nine times out of 10, I, I would actually say 10 times out of 10, the audience is invested in the evening. They want to have fun. If you, if you provide professional entertainment, they're gonna take the ride with you. But I have seen in even the best of circumstances that, it, that if you lose the audience or they're just never there to start, uh, it happens. And, it, and what's interesting is that you could have a room of a hundred different individuals but they coalesce as a one-term audience. And that is is what you have to win over as an entertainer, whether it's music or comedy or, or theater, whatever. And that experience, like, that's why I love stand-up comedy. Steve, you can tell me why too, but like to be in a room that, you know, whatever, like many different kinds of people all having a different types of day that they can all come in and if the comedy's good you're laughing together every you know everyone five high five and whatever you're all like as a group experiencing that thing or you know like when you're in a movie and everyone's like cheering at that one part in the movie or whatever i love that that's why i love going to see stand-up so much live i i miss going to see it but yeah I, Having that shared experience go the wrong way, I can't even imagine. Like, I can't, I don't know how stand-up comedians recover from that. I don't know. You just hey, have to. Hey, man, you know? yeah, there, there, there's an increased uh, 
ad admiration and respect for stand-up comedians when you take a, a stab at that yourself. And, uh, you know, I had to find out the hard way. Um, like, dude, I don't even know if the audience is doing it um, consciously, but if you if you bomb man they're going to let you know <laughs> um and like now that i've done it and tried it a couple times i actually look forward to it i guess because i'm a sick uh motherfucker but uh, <laughs> I, I, I don't know it just i don't know it, it's it's just like that awkward silence it was like oh my god he's bobbing I, I don't know man this is this is interesting uh watch him dig himself a bigger hole well a, a couple quick side <laughs> points you, you point out what happens when you bomb and one of the geniuses at turning a bad monologue into something funny was uh johnny carson i mean some of his funniest shows is one the, the material that's not written by him of course it's written by other people including stand-up comics that sent it in by the way they get paid 50 bucks a joke um when he would do his material on the tonight show his monologue if it started bombing he could turn that into funny he had he had the timing and the presence and the experience and that's a gift and he he was really good at that but i wanted to share something else about show business that i think steve will be able to relate to <clears throat> is it stand-up comedy is one of the few art forms where you you kind of live or die by that show by you know you're remembered for your last joke uh as you're going through your set each piece has to sell itself and succeed They're, the opposite of that is that we're trained as ch from children on from from a young age on that when a musician finishes a song whether it sucked or was great you applaud you re, you appreciate that they had the talent enough even if they weren't good at the uh trumpet and they finish a song that just tore your ears out and made them bleed you would still go oh yeah well you know you got up there you played the trumpet i don't know how to play the trumpet good for you that doesn't happen in comedy no, no. <laughs> you're not giving any there's no free applause or or life trained um appreciation of stand-up comedy you have to earn it each and every time well and there's nowhere to go that's the terrifying thing to me is if you're in the midst of a, just an awful bomb I, unless you just say you know what i got like you, i'm i'm out bye and just leave you just have to sit there and even if it's just silence and not somebody going you suck hearing people breathe while you're trying to get a laugh i mean for minutes on end i can't even imagine just bone chilling to me that's why well, I'm glad I blacked out when I did my one <laughs> try. I'm like, well, I don't even know. I, you know, maybe everyone was laughing their ass off and I just don't remember it. Well, I will share that a lot of the people that you and I know as professional entertainers still get stage sweat, still have, uh, will take a shot of courage before they're set, uh, still are nervous. Uh, I've been on stage a thousand times. I'm still, you know, I was nervous getting ready for this podcast. Yep. I mean, there, if if you care about what you're doing, there's going to be some intrepidation to doing it well, right? And I think what makes the difference between an amateur and a professional is you know how to have those feelings and still go forward. See, a lot of people that won't, let's say, succeed at an open mic, no offense, Matt, is that you you get up there and you don't do well, you, you're done, you didn't go back. And it, it, hats off to Steve, 
he bombed, but he went back up. And that that's what you got to do. It's like it's like uh, horseback riding. If you fall off, don't give up. You got to get back on the horse. Oh yeah, because that's greatest, how you learn. The, the I mean, greatest of all bomb. All oh of yeah, them. everybody. I mean, there's people everybody that does, I've heard. Man, think of them. Like uh, Chris Rock used to come up. I used to hear comedians on podcasts talk about it, where when he's trying to get his sets ready, all he does is go up and bomb till he gets the, like he basically rushes the process a little bit for maybe if he's doing like an Emmys or something. And he'll just go up and he'll just be like, listen guys, like this is, we're gonna see what happens here. And he'll just go up and you're like, you're watching Chris Rock, but he's bomb, but he's like trying to get ready for something. and. That's like a guy, like uh, Scott saying, like he's lived in that and he's not, he's so uh, experienced. He's not even afraid. He's like, this is part of it. I have to bond. That's a part of the process. Steve nailed it. And Chris Rock is a perp. He, I'm sorry, go ahead. I just said you nailed it. It's a part of the process. That's why uh, a, a comic never goes on the Tonight Show with a brand new joke. He's already done it. 20 or 30 times to make sure he's got the verbiage and the timing right. Yeah. It, it, you have to do the work. Now you, you have to fall in love with the process, man. And like, even, even the guys who are headlining Madison Square Garden, you might catch them coming into like a regular schmegler open mic on a Wednesday. That's what Dave Chappelle is notorious for doing. And he's yeah. Dave Chappelle. And, but because he's a student of this craft and he's serious about it, um, he cares enough about it he wants to improve. Jerry Seinfeld is always looking for ways to improve. Uh, you know, he, he might be a pariah, but Louis C.K. is always looking for ways to improve. And, and he's, in my opinion, one of the funniest guys ever. Well, um, I, I can take the example uh, to the extreme. The king of, I don't mean to interrupt, Steve, but the king of comedy stage entertainment, Robin Williams, who has done movies and been on thousands of stages and TV shows, loved the art form, loved the expression and the interaction with the audience so much. I had the pleasure to have Robin on my stage twice and neither time I had to pay him. He was doing a concert somewhere nearby and he would get off doing a, an hour and a half show at some big arena and then come over to my little club and do an hour. I mean, it was, wow. he just loved the the whole art form, the experience and the audience interaction. Robin was a genius at that. But to what Steve was saying is he did it because he enjoyed it. It wasn't, it wasn't a job to him. He loved it. Well, and I mean, if you have to, if the process involves just eating garbage on stage over and over again, like it is really part of the learning curve. I mean, you have to love it. You know, you have to want to do that for your life. And like, that's why I do, I was telling you earlier, I love listening to podcasts and hearing sort of the behind the scenes or what it's like to live the life of a comic. And I mean, to get to what most people say, you know, these people you're talking to that are accomplished comedians, it seems like maybe that's like a 10 year process to get where you're a weathered, competent comedian and you can just have that confidence that's a big investment. That's something you have to know that you're, you know, as a 37 year old guy that I am for me to just say, you know what, I want to do stand up comedy. That's a arduous process to take at a, you know, at my age or just like in general. So yeah, the love of the game has to be something big. And I think when you watch a good stand up comic, whoever your favorites are, you know, Dave, we, uh, Steve mentioned Dave Chappelle. 
to see somebody like that, it's clearly, he just loves stand-up comedy. Like, that's where he lives and breathes. So yeah. it must I'm be kind so of great me off, to see man. that process over and over again, because you've seen that happen. Did your comedy club have a big open mic scene? Did you foster new comics or was it more the you said you were an A room, so you did more of like the bigger names, right? Well, we brought in A level headliners, but no, we were still a training ground, a university. We had open mics every Tuesday. We would have an, a big uh, comedy competition every year. It was called the Great Northern California Comedy Competition. And we helped develop uh, several acts uh, Karen Anderson used to uh, uh, do be an open micer and MC and did some training. She has been a longtime writer for the Ellen Show. Uh, we, you saw that you heard the interview with Lois Bromfield. Uh, she went on to be one of the writers on the Roseanne Show. Um, t uh, Tim Bador was a radio disc jockey. Started off as an open micer at my club and built into an actual headlining act and he's a regular on the Bob and Tom radio show. So there's several instances where somebody got the opportunity at my club Laughs Unlimited and went on and made a professional career out of it. And I and that let's bring it back to the 90s. Uh, in the 90s, 92 and 93, one of the popular TV shows was the Paula Poundstone show. And I'm sure most of your audience has heard of Paula Poundstone. Uh, she came to my club. She was out of Boston and she had done some open mic work and some opening act work in Boston. But there uh, and there's a little bit of a comedy scene there then. But she came out and quite frankly, she sucked. Uh, she was a unique personality, but she just had not found her voice she on stage. The, huh? She had the tiny Tim hairdo. She had the shoulder <laughs> yeah. pads, right? She had the shoulder pads. Yeah. 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 So Paula comes out, and in my 20 plus years of producing comedy shows, everybody only worked one week or one set. Paula was the only act in the history of my production work where I let her work multiple weeks in a row because we were helping her develop her first set. Wow. And people that were uh, a part of that, for example, was Gary Shandling and George Wallace both worked with her to help her because she was already a unique personality and, and funny and a little strange, but she needed to find what I called her voice on stage. And uh, she ended up being a, a really successful celebrity. And if you guys want, I queued up just a, a short set from her. Do you have a minute? Oh, yeah. let's, let's go for it. If it, I hope it plays right. If not, we can like like put it into the episode afterwards. But let's, well, let's try to let's, do that. Let's see if it works, ladies and gentlemen. Live on my stage at a very early age, Paula Poundstone. Thanks very much. Yeah, I was able to nail down the uh, comedy oasis job. <laughs> I'm able to go to Winnipeg and Sacramento. I'm feeling pretty good about it. Tonight shows nothing when you compare it to Sacramento. <laughs> Unlimited laughs, you guys. What more could you ask for? Jay loves the road. I, I like it, okay? It gets a little depressing though sometimes. I was in Cleveland a couple weeks ago. I ran into Chevette and tried to drive into a tree and kill myself. Uh, only as it turns out, you can't get up enough speed to do that in a Chevette. <laughs> you, know, you, you, you can knock the Kleenex box off the dashboard. <laughs> Which certainly vents a good deal of feeling. <laughs> Are there a lot of tourists here? 
Eagles are going to get their butts kicked in the playoff game, I think. <laughs> I, uh, I, I'm trying to think if I've done anything summery or vacation I don't really too much. I'm always edgy in the summer because my parents uh, recently bought a Winnebago. <laughs> which means they can pull up in front of my house any day now and just live there. <laughs> So that was Paula Poundstone. Did you hear that okay? Yeah, that was great. Yeah. That was awesome. So she was uh, uh, doing a, a concert for me and uh, uh, very funny, but uh, I have a good little side story. Uh, back in the day, I had a boat and uh, Sacramento, my club was on uh, the Sacramento River and I had a boat and I would take the entertainers out uh, for a break uh, pre-show. You know, we're, we were uh, one of the few clubs that we would spend time with the entertainers uh, away from the club. And we took Paula out uh, skiing and we're out in the boat and she wasn't a skier and a couple of us have skied and, and I'm driving the boat and uh, I'd already skied and was not looking too good. And at one point uh, my hat blew off and, and she quietly said, put the hat on. Put, really put the hat on <laughs> just because uh, I look like an idiot but uh, the, the funny part of the story was that she said I want to go swimming and uh, we said well you know it's a river it's got a current we want to make sure that uh, you're safe and she goes no 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 I know what I'm doing you know we'd be horrible to uh, lose a uh, talent like Paula while taking her swimming so she jumps out of the boat and starts swimming upstream and what was kind of funny and we we tried very hard not to laugh at her but laugh with her uh she was stroking as hard as she could and wasn't moving at all because she had decided to swim upstream and her swim stroke was about the same pace as the river and so for about 10 minutes she was stroking her life out and didn't get a foot of distance <laughs> and i mean it was that's really a great workout the though there. she must have been a great athlete, at least a good swimmer 10 minutes i mean oh yeah no no she was she was enjoying it and then we pulled her back in the boat and she was like we didn't move <laughs> there's people that pay good like money for pools woman. like that scott like she had she got like the lap pool in before it was even a thing just hop in the river oh right exactly oh that's so is, is she pretty tall i'm sorry is she pretty tall for a woman no 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 she was she's about uh five she, okay. four five five oh, wow. uh she was she was a little bit of a strange oh, bird yeah a lot of people don't know that uh and i don't think she does this anymore she's a mom now but back in the day she would literally carry around packets of white sugar and just pop one open and just down it and are we uh, sure there was sugar in those packets <laughs> well uh, i'm not saying there were drugs around but no she, she loved her white sugar i mean honestly as a fat child i used to do that too so i, no way. I gotta tell you i i was i can sympathize with paula in that regard so i think it's worse it blows my mind a lot of her energy it, it, what steve it, it blows my mind with these straight edge comedians that say like, man, I, I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't do Like, dude, so you just go up sta on stage and do this sober? Like, yeah, how do you like, deal with this? That's just mind blowing to me. Like, well, really? The the secret behind the curtains truth is, is a lot of them did their share of uh, drugs and drinking in the, in the when they were preparing to be, uh, you know, professionals on stage uh, trust me i saw my share yeah. uh, not not a partaker of uh, drugs but i uh, had my share of drinking at the time but uh 
it, it when we alluded to earlier that a lot of times having a beer or a shot before you go on stage does help relax you and um the the problem with a lot of entertainers even like johnny carson and some other famous uh people that would became alcoholics or drug addicts is that uh, you have to be able to control that that's all you do and some people uh, don't have that ability and it ends up uh, taking them the wrong path but uh, uh, yeah it's it's all part of the entertainment scene I'm sure it's the same in theater and and uh, well look at the music world I mean everybody I was just going to say Look at those rock stars, man. They got to go on tour. Okay, we, we, we're doing Seattle on this day. And then tomorrow we got to do Sacramento. And then every time they go to these different cities, they have to do something to loosen up and, and go on stage. And then next day, reset. And Well, look at the Rolling Stones. They've lasted forever. Some people think that it's just longevity. I, I think they're petrified. <laughs> they have to be. They have so to be. So many drugs, they're just, you know... There's, there's nothing. Oh, I mean, about. yeah, the mix in their blood. I feel like they're probably going to live. They're going to live past the roach at this point. They just have <laughs> something in them, you know, that we can't get because we don't have access or that we couldn't maintain. But yeah, I feel like there's plenty of comedians that also with comedians, they have the thing where they're by themselves. You know, you have to be a road comic. You're in a hotel. You got to eat shitty. And it's like, almost like if you're not doing drugs what are you i guess you're a joe rogan type that's just doing push-ups in his you know hotel room all day and just like working out constantly or something but well so uh, food prepping your 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 keto diet yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> well everybody approaches the the uh, work differently uh some are you know sit down and i'm gonna write for an hour every day even if they don't ever use it they want to keep their brain working that way others would use uh workouts to fill their time others play golf and sports but some would just get into a drug haze and wait for their next set i mean it just everybody has a different uh path i guess and and uh and Some I think of the 90s comics or comedians who were like big and then I guess it ended in the 90s, you know, like people like Sam Kennison and stuff like that, where it was like, that's like the main part of their story, really. And actually, well, that kind of leads me. I wanted to ask you about one sure. specific comedian just because huge fan of him and I was just such intrigued by the guy. Did you ever work at all or have any connection to Bill Hicks? Bill worked for me a couple times. He was wow. uh, an interesting guy. Uh, smoked heavily uh, on stage, even though it was uh, against the smoking laws at the time. Always had a drink in his hand. Um, he was, um, boy, how do you explain Bill Hicks? He was really talented and uh, really had a message in his humor, but it was, um, you know, just a little edgy, a little political, a little uh, erotic, but but not over the top. And he had a very um, kind of matter of fact delivery. I, I wish I could come up with a good analogy. Bill Hicks was um, 
really interesting guy to work with. And by the way, a great guy off stage, seemed perfectly normal, didn't, uh, his onstage persona was different than his onstage. A lot of people don't realize, you know, they'll see somebody like Dana Carvey, who's bouncing off the walls on stage and he's like that all the time. Yeah. And they're not, they have, they have a calm point or a normalcy off stage. Some of them, some don't. Um, but Bill Hicks was uh, a great guy to have the honor to work with. It was sad to lose him. Yeah, I mean, he was a legend. I just, he was one of the guys when I, I was like, uh, he to me was like a comic version of Hunter S. Thompson almost, where he was his, he was funny, but there was like this message behind the madness that he was like, you know, his act and everything. And well, you saw a lot, yeah, you saw a lot more of that in the uh, 60s. Uh, when comedy was more akin to folk music, Steve and I might be able to relate to that. Uh, you know, in the 60s, the late 50s and 60s, folk music and into the 70s was uh, very popular. And there was always uh, a message maybe about Vietnam or politics or, or, or social issues. Um, but in comedy, there was... Um, uh, it, was, it wasn't mainstream. There weren't comedy clubs anywhere. Uh, back then, comics would uh, entertain between strippers at a strip club or in between bands at a music hall. There was no quote-unquote comedy club. Yeah. These smoky, uh, rinky-dink, hole-in-the-wall clubs, you know, uh, where somebody might be in the bathroom shooting up heroin. Um, <laughs> like, so you, you said you, you were around Bill Hicks. Uh, he was a part of this collective called the Outlaws, I believe, right? With uh, he, It was him, Sam Kinison, and a couple other guys from like uh, the southwestern part of the, the country. Um, yeah, both of them I, I know of one Texas. of the guys. I, I, like when I was in Houston, I, I was able to, to share the stage on open mic with uh, one of their friends, Andy Huggins. Uh, in, oh, yeah, Andy. Yeah. yeah, you know Andy, uh, good oh, yeah. dude, man. He he's he's still alive, and his birthday was recently, man. Andy, if you ever hear this, happy belated birthday, buddy. <laughs> um, and uh, he was actually on that show with uh, Howie Mandel, um, and you could look it on YouTube, man. Uh, now he he did the, uh, the I think it was Last Comic Standing, and he did his set, and Howie Mandel is one of the judges, and after the set, Howie Mandel realized like Andy. That's you, dude. Do you remember me? And it was so it was heartwarming because Howie Mandel, of course, he's a household name at this point, and Andy, uh, they they basically worked together back in the day, and they basically shared a moment in front of America. And right. Andy, uh, they, they asked yeah. him, and and they asked him like, so like, okay, he's Howie Mandel. Andy, if you've been in the game this long, like, what like what happened? What like where's the drop off? And it, in a roundabout way, he basically said, you know, I, I, I work at my own pace kind of deal. Um, well, you know, I, I alluded to that earlier. There's a lot of comics. Uh, in fact, in my podcast uh, introduction, we say that, that we're working with the famous and not so famous. And that's because there was a lot of professional comics. Uh, we were talking about Lois Bromfield or Steve Bruner or uh, Tim Bedore that uh, made a great living very successful entertainers but they're just not household names and in the case of andy huggins and uh uh he just went a different path and never became quote unquote famous that doesn't mean he didn't make a living or endure in his art form yeah i mean that's an oh, incredible man, he thing crushes it every time he goes on man and and he's clean there there's not a lick of profanity i'm like dude 
you were friends with Sam Kennison and Bill Hicks? <laughs> I, like, I don't know what his material was like back in the day. Like, I, I don't know what he was like back in the day, but like now he's like in his 70s and he's like clean cut. Damn, Steve. Um, I don't know. He might be in his 60s. Um, well, I met, even I, with his clean material, man, he kills it. Oh, yeah. Andy never worked for me. I met him in L.A. Uh, at a couple of the clubs uh, at the improv and stuff. But the um, uh, Sam Kennison worked for me, Bobcat Goldthwaite, uh, uh, all the guys that you're talking about. And uh, there was a famous boy. Well, he's not famous. In fact, he's not famous. But one of the best was a guy named Jack Marion who was a stand-up comic that his entire set, we used to introduce him as a, I don't know if you guys know the term, a blue comic. And a blue comic means that they're dirty. Now this doesn't mean they're dropping F-bombs, it means they're talking about sex. And uh, Jack Marion was the best at getting across uh, really in a really funny way about uh, the sexual situations between men and women and, and uh, and he would go into detail and very, very funny. He's never got famous. He was really good at his job, but um, there's these different ways to attack things. I mean, you, you turn around and you get a, a Bobcat Goldthwaite that uh, would basically scream at the audience. And that was his presentation of material. He was a shy, quiet guy backstage. Bobcat was not one of those crazy off the wall guys backstage but on stage he looked like an angry you know and he's just throwing his material out there and that was his act his right i mean he kind of got stuck yeah. in that too which is so bizarre because now he actually doesn't you know he's a comedian still he does more than that but uh so bizarre that you know he did it and it got famous i mean he really got a lot of uh well, Sam Kennison, the same way. Sam Kennison had a, a out of Texas had a, a great uh, viewpoint on material and was very funny. But you know what made him famous was he would scream his punchline. Yeah. Da, 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 da. Yeah. A lot of these guys create personas. Uh, I have another example for you, Gilbert Gottfried. Um, yeah. Listen to his real voice. He sounds nothing like. He sounds nothing like that. He, he, he's figured out a persona. Um, and even if you look at his old stuff, when he was on SNL, a lot of people forget he was uh, on those, uh, one of the, the horrible cast of SNL, the, uh, the after the original right. cast. Right, and right. he hadn't figured it out at the time. Into the late um, 80s. You know, right. I think that was, a, yeah, he hadn't figured it out until like much later in the decade, man. And uh you know, some people or a lot of people, they, they do that. Like, okay, this is my thing. When I'm out in the public, this is how I'll present myself. Um, and you know, like I'll a Dice Clay, right? Degree. Isn't Even that how Dice yeah. Clay is? Dice Clay yeah. got typecast. He, yeah. he did a, you know, he did a couple things on stage. Then he got a couple TV spots. He created a persona. Somebody said, oh, let's make a movie about that persona. And he made a crappy movie. Well, he was stuck yeah. with it. And what don't, made it different. Don't tell him that, Scott. Do not tell <laughs> him yeah, there's a crappy movie. Sorry, it was a great movie. It's, <laughs> it should be up there with Gone with the Wind. But Ford uh, Fairlane should have won an Oscar. Okay, guys? <laughs> It had Wayne well, Newton as the villain, so come there on. There you go. It was, it, <laughs> but it was a great example, uh, and Steve pointed it out as somebody that got trapped in the character. Well, he's still doing it. I mean, that's just him now. He he went from doing that as like a character because didn't he do mainly impersonations of uh, 
like John Travolta and stuff before he be- got to be dice. Right. Yeah. He would he would do different impressions. Right. Right. No, so you're weird. right. He was the Jersey guy. Yeah. Yeah. He was definitely East Coast. Uh, and and there's something else that uh, I don't know if uh, we didn't talk about in this particular podcast, but uh, uh, we're talking about different types of comedy. It was, um, and I was saying how Sacramento uh, presented kind of that Midwestern or mid-states Bible Belt kind of uh, audience, but you had LA TV comedy, but you had all the people coming from the East Coast where it was comics out of New Jersey, New York, and oh man, to them, it was all about attitude. If you didn't have attitude, you weren't Mm. funny. And then you come out to San Francisco and you try to go on stage and have that attitude and all the, you know, uh, uh, hippies uh, going back to the 70s and 80s would hear this angry attitude material and have no idea how to take it. And so those acts had to either teach the audience or adjust to the audience. It's, It's, you always have to play to the audience. You know, you're not going to do the same set at a church that you would do at a at a uh, biker bar, right? Yeah. Although that's what Sam separates Kin- the pros that was from interesting. the amateurs. Something right. I found about Sam Kinison later on was that you know he was like the son of a preacher, and that's oh, sort yeah. of where he got his cadence originally was through doing sermons in church. Like he was, go- in fact, I think he actually did sermons while he was famous as Sam Kinison, which is wild as hell to me. To think about. Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, hey, uh, a great SNL story. Uh, you know, one of the acts that uh, uh, he got his start in the Bay Area and worked for me when he was really young was uh, Dana Carvey. Right. And uh, he was in a band, Steve. I don't know if you knew this. He had a band with his brother and they used to go around and play. And he brought his uh, brothers and his band into my club for a week. And he was doing uh, Chopping Broccoli and and the Burger King song before he was on SNL. But uh, the story I wanted to share was that uh, he worked for me quite a bit. Uh, he was one of our regulars. And uh, after one uh, a show one weekend night, uh, we were back at the uh, uh, condo in the jacuzzi. And there's like four or five of us sitting around in the jacuzzi with Dana having drinks. And he goes, you know, uh, I just got a call. Uh, I'm going back to New York. Lauren Michaels wants to uh, uh, put me on the show. And I said, you're kidding. That's great. And he goes, uh, yeah. You know. <laughs> In other words, he was excited, but also afraid that, you know, he'd been doing uh, stand-up comedy for a number of years for me and, and around clubs in Northern California. But to get that call, hey, we want to see you uh, on the SNNL, you know, Saturday Night Live show stage and getting the call from Lauren Michaels was, and as we all know, made his career. And that's how he met Mike Myers. Then it led to the movies and boom, boom, boom. In fact, uh, I'm not sure when you're going to launch this, but uh, later today, he and Mike Myers uh, redo their Wayne's World characters for a uh, Super Bowl commercial. Oh, wow. Well, yeah, we, yeah, so dang, that. that's going to be a blast from the past. I mean, yeah, exactly. Dana Carvey, his chop and broccoli, I was waiting for you to say it, but I remember that we talked earlier about watching, like I used to watch stand-up comedy with my dad, and I remember watching that. It was on all the time on Comedy Central, and man, he was just a, one of my favorites for sure. That's oh, crazy. yeah. I've you got were there the, when uh, he got the call, when the, around the time he got the call to be on SNL. Wow. 
Oh, it was—it was, it was like with within an hour of us getting in a jacuzzi together. It was mm. just uh, crazy. But uh, I do have—I uh, don't. How long is your show? Are we getting a little lengthy here? I think maybe we can. I mean, I don't want to go too long. Like, let's not cut anything off. But we could end it here. If you, we, maybe you got something to talk about, we can end. Well, we just—we were just talking about the the Burger King song. Would you like to hear it? Blast it. Let's see it uh is going to uh maybe not send it to me and i can put it in no matter what but chopping broccoli is uh, one of the greatest here is song that neil did that wasn't released it was a commercial he did for mcdonald's a few years back you may never have heard it but you're gonna hear it now this is dana carvey about 1982 before saturday night live you weren't even alive steve <laughs> wanted to just share a piece of that that's crazy that's so, so amazing i love dana carvey man yeah. yeah what's great about that particular piece is uh he had uh he'd been working my club for several years he brought his whole band up in that particular recording so he and his brother had a band the whole band's up there and he actually brought backup singers i don't know if you could hear it but there were two young ladies standing behind him and they were doing the harmonizing uh the burger king song when he went off and was talking to the audience and trying to talk him into a group orgy it was kind of fun <laughs> that's one way to get into an orgy though i mean uh, that's a great sell i mean that's great yeah, i mean Car- what a talented dude he has that in him and he's funny as hell too you know that's great i feel like he's a perfect example of preparation meets opportunity and like you touched on earlier um like these guys have been performing these bits and segments for a long time uh before their their opportunity arises and there's no telling how many times he's performed that chopping broccolis before we saw it on nbc oh god um, yeah. and, right and right no and it, it was a huge hit on saturday night live 
And there's no telling how long he's been doing these impersonations. And to me, Dana Carvey is like one of the gods of impressions. Um, he's probably been doing this since he, he was a kid. So by the time he got that phone call from Lauren Michael, he was ready. He was more. Oh, than ready. right, right. But even well, he wasn't in sure that moment, he was, he was scared. Like Scott said, that's what's telling to me is like, you could be like as accomplished as he is, as talented as he is, but it never takes away that moment where you're like, I don't know, like oh, this might be. Oh yeah, you, you have doubts. You know, right, you, it, it's good. Yeah, to, it's exactly. like an, an affirmation. Like when you do feel nervous, like I, like you said, I was nervous up for this call, but whenever you, you know, step out of that and move forward, like people like Dana Carvey, I mean, Jesus, if he wouldn't have done that, think about that. Well, it, it was great to be able to uh, share some material with uh, you guys and the audience. And I think that uh, uh, what happened in the nineties is a great podcast because it does relate to things that everybody that grew up in the nineties can, um, share with you whether it's sports or old tv commercials or television shows uh, like the paula poundstone show or the or the gary shanling show and for me to be able to have a chance to be on your podcast and talk about what these people were doing the decade before they were famous and got the tv shows that you guys are talking about now does kind of put it all in perspective and i think it, it does come together and uh, so thanks for, for sharing that in your podcast. I mean, well, thank I got to say, we yeah, thank you for being here and just giving us your time because I, I hope maybe we can do this again. Like I, I've had so much fun, but I have a thing of notes here and I haven't covered half of them. So <laughs> um, you can't get rid of us now, Scott. <laughs> yeah, you're, we'll be back, Scott. I'm going to call you again, but. Um, All right, well, let's no. do it again because uh, there's there's lots more stories and lots. To, we want to get down that list that you made and make I mean, sure we that have uh, to. I, I got I mean, Bobby Slate and Kevin Kevin oh. Pollack. I I have things I want to I need to know about. So I but think Scott's going to be back. You mentioned sure. Kevin Pollack. You know, uh, Steve was saying that uh, Carvey did all those great impressions. Uh, Kevin Pollack is is famous for being a oh, terrific yeah. actor and done some amazing uh, movies like The Usual Suspects and um, what End was of days to a lesser extent, but I still loved him in the movie. He was fantastic. So. Well, live on stage and maybe next time we get I together, like I'll share some with you. He would do uh, amazing impressions. In fact, his career has nothing to do with him being an impressionist. But back in the day on stage, he was one of the best impressionists I ever booked. That's why his podcast, and I maybe he has different ones, but there's one where he'll, basically all of him, all, all the ones he does, he does on a regular basis. But his Christopher Walken, for oh, my yeah. money, is the best Walken you can get. It's him and Jay Moore, but he's... He's got it. He has he has the uh, whatever it is that Christopher Walken is. He's he is the, a great uh, impersonation. The bit I have is from uh, when he was just new and he was it was back in the '80s on stage and he did all those characters. But it was the cast of Star Trek, which was huge at the time. The Star Trek show uh, was was still on or, or in repeats. But anyway, he did uh, was famous at the time. So he has. Um, Christopher Walken and all these different characters, but as the cast of Star Trek, it's oh, hilarious. Man. We'll save it for next time. <laughs> there we go. But, but yeah, before we go, I don't, I don't, I don't want to go away without you know plugging your book, man. No, uh, you know that's what I was gonna say. Let's get the plug my my big noggin is covering oh. it. You can't see the full cover, uh, but tell us a little bit about your book. Oh, 
my book, Be a Stand-Up Comic or Just Look Like One, uh, is available uh, through my website and through uh, my podcast. And the podcast, if you guys get a chance and you enjoyed uh, this and you like stand-up comedy, is called Stand-Up Comedy, Your Host and MC. And if you get a chance, check it out. There's some great historical stuff. But more importantly, it's really funny. It's entertaining. And it's not just comedy from the 80s and 90s, but I get a chance to reconnect with a lot of these entertainers. And I'm doing interviews. And these interviews uh, are recent, and we're talking about those days. I, th I think it's fun, and, and if you get a chance, check it out. Oh, it's, it's great. I, as somebody, if you love stand-up comedy at all, check it out. But especially for 90s, it's, I mean, I loved it. Uh, the ones I've been able to check out were fantastic, so. Oh, well, thank you. It's yeah. It's been a real uh, uh, work of love to, to put this together. And uh, in fact, uh, next week, I'm interviewing uh, Yakov Smirnov. And a famous Russian comic, one of his first clubs I remember that name. was my club. <laughs> I've seen him on at the comedy store pretty recently. They let him do like a set. I think he actually did a set. It's very, uh, it's uh, not what you would, I, it's bizarre. I found it very bizarre, but it's crazy. Well, he's, you know. he's changed a lot in the 80s and 90s. When I met him in, in the early 80s, he'd literally just come from being uh, uh, he was a Russian, uh, native Russian. He was uh, doing comedy on the Black Sea on cruise ships, but it, to a Russian audience. So it was very regulated and very wow. stiff. And he came out to California and he was still learning English when he was working my stage and had a whole act with songs and music and dancing, uh, all Russian-based. But then he got famous interacting with uh, uh, Nixon, I think it was. Nixon or Reagan anyway but he's gone on he's moved on he's a PhD now and and uh, I just talked to him last week he was in Bali uh, doing a, a talk and uh, he he's uh, smart beyond smart uh, has several degrees but you know you never know where comedy will take you <laughs> I guess and also I have to say I was it wasn't Yakov Smirnov it was Emo Phillips is the person oh oh that's him. the difference yeah very now, big Emo, difference now, very Emo big worked big. for me yeah there's a big difference between those two Yakov yeah. Smirnov's the famous Russian comic he did a couple of movies Emo Phillips who worked for me as well was just a unique i think steve you were mentioning it he had a unique persona and image that he would do on stage and a quick side note on emo phillips that a lot of people don't know when he was starting to get famous in the late 80s and early 90s he didn't want to deal with trying to memorize names so his manager his agent his makeup artist and his hairdresser all had the same first name that was that was the only way he would employ them and Our man he didn't want to he didn't want to worry about learning different names wow hey i mean as somebody who forgets people's names very quickly i respect that uh hopefully <laughs> that makes life the ability easy. to do that someday yeah. but you know hey bob crazy. and four people turn around <laughs> right <laughs> But so yeah. the book is the books in uh, uh, you can get a hard copy that's autographed uh, or you can get a digital copy. Uh, I'll send one to you guys uh, as soon as it's available. And uh, the podcast, if you get a chance, check it out. And there's a website, and uh, we hope you enjoy it. But it's been a real pleasure sharing this time with uh, Steve and Matt on it happened in the '90s, and uh, your audience I know is enjoying that your take and nostalgic look at, a, at an interesting decade. Well, thank we you so much. Really appreciate it, Scott. Steve. Thank you, Scott. It's been we a pleasure. It.
We got it, guys. We got one of the legends here. This is you're our first guest, Scott. So you got first of all feel honored in that way, and we feel honored to have you. So thank you so much. All right. Well, thank you, guys, and and to the audience. Keep listening and be sure to share and rate. It happened in the '90s because it's out there for you. Love this guy. All right. We'll all see right, you guys next week, Steve. Bye. Happened in the 90s. Ah. 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 Ah.